Welcome to the Positivity Podcast, where we explore the skills and strategies of personal development with cutting-edge researchers, authors, entrepreneurs, and experts. Tom Vander Ark is a titan in the world of education technology. Few have experiences as wide and as deep as he, so I figured that for the introduction, I'd ask him what he learned from each of these experiences. A bit on his journey. Tom was the superintendent of Federal Way Public Schools. Being a superintendent is the, the best job and the worst job on the planet simultaneously. It is unbelievably humbling um, because it's so incredibly personal you know for every parent the most important thing uh, is for their child and that for them their son or daughter is the most important thing in the world tom worked one-on-one with bill gates and managed 3.5 billion dollars as the executive director of education for the gates foundation what he learned what what i learned and loved about um working with the Gates family, just thinking big in an unbridled way about what might be possible on planet Earth and actually having the resources uh, to do something about it. Uh, and, and thinking particularly about change theories, about our assumptions about how things change, why things change, and what kinds of change stimuli can be introduced into a system uh, in a way that's likely to produce positive impact. He was the president of XPRIZE, an organization that runs multi-million dollar contests for innovation in learning, exploration, energy and environment, global development and life sciences. What I learned at uh, XPRIZE is to imagine the impossible. I mean, every day in every scope of human endeavor, uh, we worked with people trying to imagine what didn't currently exist and what would benefit billions of people. He was the director of INACOL, the International Association for K-12 Online Learning. What I love about that organization is their leadership on competency-based education. They know the net benefit of, of the technology is really to put learning um, in, in the learner's hands. So I appreciate their thought leadership. He is a partner at Learn Capital, an education VC firm that's invested millions in companies like General Assembly, Edmodo, Minerva, Alt School, Coursera, and Make School. Uh, like like grant making, investing is about making tough choices and uh, making those in the context of uh, categories that are likely to produce uh, big benefit. I guess another important lesson of venture capital is. Um, cutting your losses and uh, sometimes walking away from what seemed like a good idea. He also runs one of the most popular education blogs, Getting Smart. I've had the good fortune to uh, work with my family at Getting Smart, uh, and that has proved to be the really the greatest blessing in my life. Uh, man, if... if Anybody has the chance uh, to work with their own kids and to work with their, uh, their spouse. Uh, it can be an enormously rewarding thing. And uh, together we try to illuminate the path forward uh, for learners around the world. And 
you know, to take on big subjects with the, the people you care most about is, uh, is really a gift. Given his 360 view of education, I wanted to get down to the basics. How to teach. How to engage students. How to motivate students. Help them direct their own learning. We also cover the big picture on where innovation is happening in education, the biggest impact per dollar, and how we as learners can benefit from all of this. It's jam-packed, it's power-packed, and this is just the start. Here's Tom. Good to be with you, Daniel. Yeah, I've really been looking forward to this interview. Let's take it back before your higher education experience. What was some of the biggest learnings you had in elementary and middle school? I was subjected to a really traditional um, primary and secondary education. Uh, It didn't suit me very well. I was always in trouble. I'm a super fidgety kid, probably ADHD by today's standards. Uh, So I wouldn't say that I had a particularly good experience. but I do remember a seventh grade teacher who was really the first person who seemed to give a shit about my writing. I mean, she convinced me that I could write better and gave me a lot of feedback. And sometimes that was painful, but, um, you know, what an important lesson. And then I went on to be a, an engineer. Uh, I went to Colorado School of Mines, which was at the time really a horrible experience, a training in rigor road and discipline. I learned to work enormously hard and I still work harder than, uh, than, than most people, I think as a result of that, but it was sort of a mind numbing training more than an education. And it wasn't until I was a 29 year old, um, treasurer of a public uh, retail company that I had a boss, our chairman of the board who was just meticulous about writing. And he made me rewrite everything and then rewrote it himself. And just being around someone who cared so much about uh, the written word, about precision, and who cared about um, how words sounded and what they they said, in a strange way, this guy who was an accountant by background uh, really was somebody who made me care a lot about my own writing and, uh, and sort of forced me as a finance guy, to become a, a much, much better writer. I'd love to dig in a, d- a bit deeper with the the mineral engineering degree. You said that it was kind of mind-numbing. Was there anything that you took away? Maybe it was just that education is imperfect. Well, uh, there's a lot that I hated about it that I, I, I you know, rebel against that I write about uh, today. It's, it's part of why I think I'm so focused on learner experience and, you know, for folks at, at, um, make school, I know you guys talk a lot about user experience and in education, we talk about a lot about learner uh, experience and why I'm so fixated by engagement and the, and the nature and the quality of learning, um, experiences. I, I really had none of that. Um, I, I remember my second year in like the only humanities class. I remember having an original thought and it scared the hell out of me. It wasn't something that was valued on that campus. Um, And it wasn't until my senior year that I actually made a uh, parking garage. I made a uh, something, you know, by hand that really felt for the first time like an engineering 
project. And so sort of by absence, I've been fascinated by high engagement, uh, quality learning experiences because of that. If you had to codify what high engagement learning experiences are, especially in this day and age, what would be the components? That's a that's a really great question. I actually just posted a blog um, last week on 22 types of uh, engagement um, experiences and, and impulses, and this morning I updated it to 26. So I'm pretty sure there's probably 30 different um, impulses that, as human beings, cause us to deeply engage in the task, and they run from uh, compliance to gap awareness, sort of understanding the gap between yourself and what really good looks like, intrigue, curiosity, challenge, craftsmanship, contribution, uh, reflection, um, collaboration, competition, a, a flow experience. All of these are different strategies that we can use as app designers and teachers and and retailers to to create a hook to get people engaged and then to propel people through a sequence of experiences. That, that I think, is the key. It's one is setting the hook, and then two, uh, in software, we talk about conversion optimization, or in, in marketing software, we talk about conversions. So it's guiding people into a, a behavior or a set of behaviors. And the same is true in learning. How do we set the hook? for each individual student and then guide them through what's likely to be really difficult work that we want them to do so that they develop uh, knowledge, skills, and and disposition. So for whether you're a retailer or an app developer or a, a an educator, I think understanding the, the human nature behind engagement is uh, enormously important. How would one go about finding out the nature of it? Is there resources that are most helpful or what's sort of the pedagogy behind really learning how to craft these amazing experiences? Uh, they can start by participating in the conversation at gettingsmart.com where we talk about this stuff uh, every every week. I would say we are students of this subject. Um, we try to learn as much as we can about um, both user experience and learner experience. And so um, we subscribe to a lot of blogs and blast and uh, podcasts um, that share information about this. And so I, I would encourage everybody to start their day with uh, an hour of power where they're reading um, rapidly from as many sources as they can and sharing what they're learning about um, about UX and, uh, and, and LX. Uh, there's a lot of really great sources. Um, I, I listened to a podcast on my bike ride to work this morning from duct tape marketing. That was a, a, a really terrific, uh, discussion, uh, around the impulse of intrigue, for example. So filling your day with, um, learning opportunities from beginning to end, uh, I think is, is part of really staying ahead today. What are some of your favorite blogs, resources, or thought leaders in terms of uh, LX? Is that learner experience? Yeah. I'm guessing that is? 
Who are the people you look to, towards for those insights? Oh, it's a great question. It's, it is, I, I'm afraid, of, uh, an emerging field where um, we haven't found really great channels yet that I would point people to. I, I find most often that I, um, I, I, my personal learning project this year has been um, in, in data-driven marketing and per, particularly conversion optimization. And I find that by studying um, innovations in this parallel field that I, I can be part of uh, translational innovations in education where we tend to run about five years behind. Um, I, I also um, have a team of people that study uh, project-based learning and uh, and are also immersed in, there's a channel called Deeper Learning. It's a, a hashtag Deeper Learning. Um, that is a particularly uh, useful channel uh, where people are learning about um, the kinds of experiences that produce much more than um, rote memorization that really promote critical thinking, um, creativity, and, and communication. So th those are some of the channels we follow. And you mentioned, you mentioned that you're, you personally have been focusing on information and conversion, sort of learning along those lines. I know you also, I think it might have been even this week, came out with a book uh, called Smart Parents that is teaching students how to, teaching parents how to really help their students be proactive learners. And so I'm really curious, you know, maybe this is a good way to frame the question. If you had an incoming class of college freshmen and you were going to have them each create their own self-directed learning plans, um, how would you go about doing that? Um, that's a great question. One, one example of a secondary school, a, a high school that does this really well is the Big Picture Network. They have um, 70 or 80 schools in this country. Um, they dig deeply uh, with every student and find something that they're interested in, and then they construct an internship around it, and then they backfill everything else. And so they create a they create an educational pathway that is passion and interest driven. So I think that's a really good um, uh, practical example for a college freshman. Uh, the key is to combine work and learning. The key to employability is to have a really good resume backed up by artifacts of really good learning. And I, I'm afraid people give short shrift to the importance of work experience. Work um, teaches us, uh, it helps us understand what we want to do and what we don't want to do in life. It helps us develop uh, the pro-social skills to work productively with other people. And the lessons that we gain in work experiences, uh, I think really drive and inspire. Well, then I would try to learning experiences and work experiences around those so that they can combine 
skill and will. Uh, th that's really the key in life, I think, is finding something that you care about and something that you're good at and finding a way to put those uh, to use together. Have you seen any good ways, and maybe the big picture, this group has done it, where people bring work and learning together, maybe something that augments the work environment to promote learning? Um, yeah, it's a good question. And unfortunately, there are a few examples. Um, we've written a lot of papers about how this should work. Um, you know, we think in education, people ought to have a, 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 a work pathway that's paralleled by a learning pathway. Um, Daniel, the, the best example may actually be the military. The military is really good at identifying leaders and then creating short people and then backing them up training, you know, with training and development experiences. So the military may be the best example of marrying work and learning in a very dynamic way. Fascinating. And you mentioned that with work and learning, it's important to come out with an artifact. What is an artifact? We're big believers in digital portfolios. Uh, we think they help learners uh, reflect on their learning and on their production. Uh, we think it leads to craftsmanship and to a sense of contribution. Uh, and so we think uh, anything created in a formal or informal learning setting should be uh, captured in a digital portfolio. Um, LinkedIn is becoming a, a, a half-decent, you know, professional portfolio. Um, th uh, there are things like uh, Pathbrite that a number of universities are using that makes it really easy. But these days, just Google Drive is a, you know, is a terrific place to capture artifacts of learning. And we, we think um, a resume these days is sort of dead without... Uh, a link to uh, a set of artifacts. Why is the artifact important? Why are the artifacts important? And, and how are they used? How have you seen them used well? Well, in dynamic job clusters like web design and development, degrees aren't very important. The, the alternative market signaling strategies are much more useful. And, and an alternative market strategy or market signaling is is some kind of a an achievement recognition system that might be a badge or a micro credential, it might be a, a set of stackable credentials, signified demonstration of learning, accompanied by a digital portfolio, so artifacts of learning, so show what you know, uh, show what you can do, and then finally uh, a set of references, people that will attest to your ability to produce results. So we think badges and portfolios and references will become as important or more important than college degrees in job categories that are the most dynamic. It's talking a lot on the employment side. I'd love to go back to teaching and teachers. And a lot of the people in the audience are also interested in teaching. And, and one of the things that we'll be doing in our schools and in our programs is having students also teaching. So my question is, yeah. 
Who are the best teachers in the world, and how can we learn from them, both in terms of content and how to teach? Um, on my list of engagement impulses, I listed teaching, and I, I agree that teaching can be the best way to learn anything. Uh, when I was the the treasurer of uh, a public retail company, I spent eight years teaching a business school course in, in finance and strategy and leadership. And I was, I was usually one of the youngest people in class and there was always somebody smarter than me on every subject, every night. And so I subjected myself to that teaching experience because for me, it was, um, this really positive pressure to, uh, to learn as much as I could about the topics we talked about, but also to teach in a way that was open to new learning myself and to uh, a collaborative learning experience where uh, students could be teachers and teachers could be, be learners. Um, so I think that's particularly an important impulse these days in teaching um, because teaching is no longer the dissemination of content. That's easy. You can Google it uh, if you need to know it. So. Teaching is much more about creating a context and a culture, one that is open and safe uh, and open to new learning. And that means starting with you as well as your learners and then being conscious about the experience that learners are having. So that means perhaps instead of answering a question, it might be um, asking a, a better question. Um, so thinking less about yourself as the expert and more about your role in constructing really powerful experiences for other other people. I think that's what good teachers uh, do do really well. It's one reason that I love visiting High Tech High, uh, where they have crazy smart teachers that collaborate on uh, very cool mashups of subjects that you wouldn't think of, of calculus and art, of social studies and, uh, and engineering, um, and challenging people to think and do things that they'd never imagined uh, before. And so I think that's the, the new role of teaching. Do you have any thoughts on techniques for motivating students? whether it be from your experiences as a superintendent or seeing stuff in the field? I think this is maybe the most important question in when it comes to learning and one that we know the least about. Um, for a decade, we, we've been having this on and off conversation about learning styles, uh, suggesting that people have different preferences for how they learn I think there's some truth to that. I think we took it to sort of ridiculous ends, um, some impractical ends, and, and as a result, the results haven't been particularly strong in, in looking at, um, at optimizing our own learning styles. I think what's more important is motivational profiles, and I think as we mature in our understanding of personalized learning, it will be the motivational profile that proves to be the most important because we we need people to work hard to learn dif difficult things. And um, working hard, persisting through difficulty, um, 
requires motivation. And for each of us, it will be a unique cocktail that uh, of motivational factors that produces persistence and performance. Uh, so I don't know if there's a, a universal answer. I think it the key is getting to know each learner uh, well as a human being and helping them create a sense of agency, of ownership for their own learning and determining what factors are most important. Um, you can use a set of extrinsic factors to get some people started, it's intrigue or fun um, or some places use fear. We learned about that at Amazon this week. But ultimately, you you want to create um, these intrinsic variables where people begin to appreciate uh, production, contribution, uh, and, and craftsmanship. Those are the sort of lasting values that I think will will really motivate people to do difficult work. Do you know any examples or techniques of how teachers can go about creating this agency within students? Because I think what comes to mind for me is the difficulty of <laughs> inherently doing something that is intrinsic because it's all within them. You know, are there any questions? Are there any things that you see top performing teachers do to give students that agency? Well, it's a it's a difficult question. Unfortunately, most are most of the formal education system that we endured was structured to squelch agency. It, you know, it was content transmission done on the school schedule at the school's location. You know, in the way that an individual teacher. Uh, deemed best. And so there was almost no personal ownership for learning. So if you're really serious about developing agency, you have to flip almost everything that you know about learning on its head and start with that question of how can I put this learner in the driver's seat? Who are they as a person? Where are they headed? What are their goals? What's their vision for the future? How can I help them co-construct a, a pathway of experiences that they will own and which will prove to be transformative to them? It is part of why I'm such a fan of, of new school development, because if you really have to turn everything upside down, um, that's very difficult to, to do through a traditional reform approach. You really have to start with your question and say, we believe agency is really central. We want to make that our focus. How do we, how do we design everything that we do to promote a sense of, of learner agency? And do you have a sense of ways that stu teachers go about understanding students well? I mean, I'd assume that there's some conversations you have or having students write journals and talking about what's important to them. But yeah. I'm wondering if there's any other things that, that stick out to you. There are. Um, let, let me go back. Let me go back to the agency question first and say that in formal and informal learning, the most important long-term trend that's happening is the shift to competency-based. And that means uh, environments where students show what they know 
and progress based on mastery. That's fundamentally different than the, the 200 years of experience we have of age cohorts where you sit through a class of a given amount of time with a number of learners of similar age, and then you move through a, a system. A competency-based system uh, by nature produces a higher degree of agency because you've given learners the opportunity to control pacing if you can, if you combine that with the ability to control path, so that there are different ways to learn, then you have the beginning of a high agency environment. the The next element that I think you need to add to that for most students um, is sustained relationships. There, there are a few people on this planet, like my old boss, Bill Gates, who are autodidacts. And Bill used to go away for a long weekend with a box of textbooks, and he would come back one of the world's experts on a new subject. Uh, he was uniquely gifted in that he was extraordinarily uh, motivated as a learner and could easily consume uh, large amounts of content and then draw uh, really semantic understanding from this new source of content. Most of us don't share those gifts and benefit from uh, a long-term sustained relationship. Uh, so in schools, that usually takes the form of an advisory. And an advisory structure is where um, you develop a relationship and, and several times a week, an advisor uh, meets with a student and monitors their academic performance and progress, but also checks in and see how they're doing as, as a human being. Uh, they, it's a distributed counseling model. It's a distributed guidance model. And so I, I think powerful relationships can also uh, be very important in producing agency. In these distributive counseling models, is this students meeting with multiple faculty members? Um, I, I'm trying to understand the distributed yeah, part. It, it's, uh, it's usually one, um, but there could be multiple roles. Mm -hmm. um, usually an advisor is one person who is uh, monitoring your progress, and then you're you're working with multiple teachers, uh, but it, it could very well be a, a specialist model, but there's usually one sustained relationship at the, at the heart of it. So in a, in a college or in a high school, you'd have one advisor for your entire uh, matriculation at that institution. Mm -hmm. So you, you may have a, uh, in high school, you may have a, a specialist who's a college advisor who you go to for specific advice around which college to go to, but there's also somebody you've been talking to three or four times every week um, that has um, been promoting career awareness, college awareness, making connections between youth and family services. Uh, same thing in college where a, an advisor um, has a sustained relationship uh, that is proving to be really, uh, really, really important, uh, particularly for 
low-income students uh, or students that haven't had really strong supports uh, at home. Yeah, and I can imagine that those conversations could help students feel motivated and recognize their learning, reflect it back to the, the counselor, and also right. feel, feel agency more. Right. So it's interesting. A couple weeks ago, we had ten, Ted Dintersmith on the podcast, and I was asking him, what are the next developments in ed tech? And he, he mentioned something that you mentioned, which is this sort of comp- competency-based self-directed learning right and and he was saying that there's got to be some room for some technology to come in and really help students get on track and stay focused right so i'd be curious to hear your thoughts on on what this sort of uh system could look look like for creating your own goals and self-directing your own path also staying agile so you can make pivots um, so I'd be curious to hear that. And then I think another another question with that is what could that look like for social emotional intelligence or yeah. understanding your own wellness, these things that are popping up in education and are more and more important, but there seems to be less less clear of a track. So how do you think about all that? One positive development we've seen in the last five years is the, the development of adaptive systems that automatically adjust the pathway based on uh, your prior performance. So these systems are now quite popular and common in reading and mathematics in K-8 settings, uh, I would say. Um, but because that happens automatically, it may not produce a sense of agency. And and we think that agency is a big benefit of competency. So the the best example that I could give you is really the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts uh, and their badging system. This is a hundred year old uh, example of competency-based learning where uh, a sequence of badges, students have some choice over which badges to work on in what order. The skill sets required are very clear they work with an out um, an outside mentor who also serves as a proctor uh, for a learning experience, and then it's a it's a sequence of demonstrations that result in a in a badge. And similarly, um, we're seeing in K twelve uh, two developments. One is just much better mastery tracking, so that parents, teachers, and students can see progress at a fairly discrete level. Uh, and two, we're seeing uh, badging systems that uh, are sort of achievement recognition systems that go with it. I- interestingly, uh, we think competency-based learning is uh, is going to become very important for teachers and uh, and educators. We've just written two papers. The most recent is preparing leaders for deeper learning, and it argues for competency-based leadership preparation. Uh, as I described earlier, sequences of work experiences combined with uh, learning experiences and each of these discrete demonstrations uh, would result in a micro-credential or a badge and, the, and uh, uh, a whole bunch of badges would uh, signify that you're ready to be a school head or a system head. So we think badging is, is super important. And you talked about uh, a set of broader aims. We're, we're really excited about 
moving away from 20-year sort of myopic focus on reading, writing, and math, which are as important as ever, but it's obvious that a broader set of aims are very important for work. The self-guidance, uh, self-direction, the pro-social skills, uh, we know those are the most important things in work and in life. And uh, I'm confident that we can develop um, badging and credentialing systems uh, to acknowledge and, and monitor the development of, of these uh, soft skills as well. Um, Summit Public Schools, uh, which just uh, in the Bay Area, which just opened uh, a couple of schools here in Washington State, are the most innovative secondary schools in the world. And they're very sophisticated about what they call habits of success. And they help students track their development and build uh, artifacts uh, around habits of success. So we are seeing um, good, steady, not yet rapid uh, progress on um, on describing social-emotional learning. I just... Uh, reposted a blog on gettingsmart.com about these non-cognitive skills. They said they're really important, but it's a really bad name. Uh, a lot of us <laughs> prefer the term agency or uh, habits of success as as uh, better descriptions of uh, the, the dispositions that we're talking about. That's all really helpful. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm, just... I'm, I'm excited about this. Uh, th there really is growing traction um, it started about eight years ago when Carol Dweck uh, discovered mindsets and Angela Duckworth uh, on the other coast uh, had similar research. And then uh, two years ago, Paul Tuff really popularized this research in, in his book about grit. And, and I would say um, that plus lots of research, as recently as a month ago, the American Journal of Public Health produced a 20-year study that shows that that uh, preschool kids that develop pro-social skills have much, much better life outcomes. So it's undeniable that these skills are um, uh, even more important than the, the basic skills that we have been testing. Um, and so I'm, I'm very excited about the momentum behind them. Uh, but as you suggested, our ability to name and measure these skills is, is still quite rudimentary. Uh, the key right now is we don't want to screw these things up by too quickly throwing them into accountability systems. Um, it, it will take us several more years to find the right way to describe and develop and, uh, and measure these. Uh, I think right now incorporating them into a, a feedback system and the regular conversation that a, a student and advisor and a parent are having on a on a regular basis is the is the right thing to do. Awesome. So we have a couple audience questions, and since we have a lot, I'd suggest that we we go about them rapid fire style. Um, Great. But feel free to be thorough in your 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 response. So the first one is. Uh, What's your take on the evolution of ed tech? Where, where has it been? Where is it now? And where is it going? <laughs> that's, a, that's a rapid fire question. Um, 
it, it was nowhere in 2008 when we launched Learn Capital. Uh, there, there was a billion six spent in the first half of this year. Uh, we've made, uh, I think, good, good progress. Um, what I'm most excited about are the environments that are co-constructing learning environments and tools simultaneously. So like Summit Public Schools is a great example. They're iterating on the learning environment and the tool set simultaneously. And it strikes me that experiments like that um, in K-12 and uh, new schools like um, College for America that came out of Southern New Hampshire uh, and their new platform, Motivus, that's another really good example of a, of a, of a new pedagogical environment, project-based learning, um, and a new competency-based platform. So I think that's an important uh, direction for uh, the future of EdTech. The next question is, in your work in EdTech, what are you most frustrated about in terms of getting things done? And what misconceptions do people have about it? Well, on the on the first one, um, in a couple of days, we're going to be launching a, um, a Gates Foundation funded study of learning platforms. So, I would say if you look back at my book um, Getting Smart, which I wrote in the fall of 2010, so fast forward five years, I thought by now 2015 we'd have two or three really robust learning. Um, platform ecosystems, and we don't. We we have, you know, twenty different apps with some market share, or twenty different platforms with a little bit of market share, and there's probably five hundred learning management systems that are out there. So I I'm frustrated that we don't have the learning platforms that we should. On the misconception side, I guess um, one of the odd things about K twelve is the the way the sector, um, the mistrust, uh, or worse, um, that many educators have for the private sector uh, and private sector investment. And uh, I think private sector investment is, is adding much needed um, R&D dollars to the sector. It's, it's what we need to make the big step forward um, but it is, it's frustrating to see the, the vitriol um, often directed at the, at the private sector. Uh, so we need a more productive partnership between uh, ed tech companies and schools. And that, that's going to take some work on uh, both sides of that relationship. In your opinion, what's the highest impact per dollar spent in education today? That's a tough one. <laughs> we, we, well, we just wrote a report on this for Paul Allen's uh, company, and it outlines and ranks 25 impact opportunities. Um, so that's a slightly different answer to your question, but it, it is a great read. It's on our, uh, on our website, gettingsmart.com. Um, and we're, we're currently working on, uh, on several of those that I think will yield some important breakthroughs. Um, the, the traditional answer to this question has been, uh, great teachers and that is, continues to be, um, 
a very important answer. Uh, what I would add to that today is to help great teachers create great learning environments. And the, the old notion of just hire great teachers and everything will be cool for kids is not quite accurate. The new opportunity set is to leverage, is to help great teachers leverage great tools to create great uh, learning environments. Uh, and, and so it's that next step of leveraging great teaching by constructing really powerful learning environments. That I think is what has transformational potential. So this next one is is a series of things, and you can say a one sentence answer for each of them. And the the broad question is, what leaders do you respect most uh, in each of these things? So. Uh, this this one will be truly rapid fire. <laughs> I'll try. Yeah. Closing the achievement gap. Well, Katie Hickok and the Ed Trust has just been the warrior on this topic for 20 years. This is a new one I'm adding. Creating good learning environments. Well, I'm, I have mentioned Summit Public Schools three times. So Diane Tabiner has an extraordinary team that I continue to learn from. Uh, so in, in K-12, I think uh, her team has, has done um, work that's just globally important. Um, I, I, would, I would just add, you know, when I think about the teachers in my life that um, – in 1999, being able to spend some time with Ted Sizer and Debbie Meyer and just understanding the importance of human relationships and relationship-driven cultures was, um, you know, was really life-changing. So I just, I really appreciate their uh, life contributions to the sector. Powerful learning experiences. I guess, I guess we, we talked about that, but anybody stand out for that? I'm, as I've mentioned, I'm really, I'm a fan of, um, of project-based learning and of that done really well. So Larry Rosenstock at High Tech High, um, Bob Lentz, who just uh, moved over to the Buck Institute, um, the New Tech Network, uh, Lydia Dobbins and, and her team, you know, trying to take this idea to scale that, you know, th those are people that are really um, working hard to engage diverse young people. What about character development? I know you mentioned a lot of the researchers. What about the people implementing it? Um, here's a surprising answer. Um, like Bill Kurtz, who leads the Denver School of Science and Technology, it's now a big school network in Denver. It's the best high-poverty STEM school in the country. What's really cool about DSST, it's a values-first environment. Um, and so Bill cares deeply about character development. And while they're a great STEM school, the most important thing they do is help develop um, really powerful young people. Um, as a foundation, I, I appreciate the Rakes Foundation is, uh, is focused on social emotional learning. CASEL, uh, C-A-S-E-L in Chicago has done great work on this. And in terms of character uh, development, the Kern Family Foundation in, uh, outside of Milwaukee has a longstanding um, contribution in this space. Here's a curveball that I'm not sure is in your domain, but sex education. Um, 
Uh, I would say outside of my domain, but a good topic for an advisory structure. I'm I'm all in favor of a um, sort of well-rounded approach to uh, to personal wellness. What does well-rounded mean to you? Well, also physically fit. Uh, you know, when we think about a when I, I talked about broader aims and we talked about pro-social, but I also want students to be able to leave. Uh, their formal learning, both high school and college, with positive uh, personal habits. So the eating and um, and getting in the habit of working out every day, um, you know, of taking care of yourself uh, psychologically, spiritually, physically. Uh, you know, those are the most important habits that uh, you you can learn, and not all of us learn those in. Uh, in high school and college, and that, that's unfortunate. Uh, you know, I'd love to see more learning environments where those those things are really stressed. So this this was a really interesting question. If you had a son or a daughter who was going into higher education, and they had really strong academic background, they knew they wanted to study computer science, and they could go to you know a top top school uh, and graduate with below average debt, what would you suggest for them? Because there's a university, there are these different hack academies, there's the web, there's their own hacking their own education. Where would you go with that? What would you suggest to your child? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and the exciting thing is that there are really, really, really good options today. And that's part of why we wrote Smart Parents, uh, Parenting for Powerful Learning, really to outline um, these questions. And in computer science, there are viable options to uh, to getting a computer science degree. I would expose a young person to traditional pathways uh, at universities and also to uh, to all the great code schools that are out there. And we would do a, a plus minus on, on each of those in terms of speed, learning environment, uh, the network that you're likely to develop, uh, the cost, uh, how proactive they are to um, uh, help identify work experiences, and then uh, would let them make the best decision they could. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for this amazing episode, Tom. Uh, I'm walking away with a huge list of stuff I'm going to research, <laughs> and I'm sure the audience is too. Sounds Great. good. Thanks. Take awesome. care. Take care.